0: This morning we're talking about what does it look like to seek Jesus first in the midst of competing realities and narratives? Uh, so Jesus' exhortation in his Sermon on the Mount to seek first the kingdom of God is an acknowledgment right away that within our lives, there's competition for what we should be seeking. There's competition for our attention. There's competition for our priorities. And what takes priority in what we are seeking with our lives, what we're giving ourselves to, determines a lot about us. And a great deal of our identity, how we see ourselves, is built on where we spend the majority of our focus. And we've talked a lot about this over the past few years. If you've been with us, like you are what you love is a common theme that comes out of a lot of our teaching. You become what you behold. But alongside this is something that has... Uh, even more primary or foundational reality, which is you, what you pursue possesses you. Or what you revere becomes your reality. And I'm old enough to have seen uh, The Matrix in theaters. Um, I so look, look forward to saying that. Some of you guys here were not even alive when it came out. Um, And that just makes me feel good for some reason. I don't even know. But if you haven't seen it, um, I don't know, like, you have to go watch it. Every, for the first, like, five years after The Matrix came out in 1999, every single pastor's, like, illustration was, it's like The Matrix, guys. (laughs) And now I'm here, like, there's been, like, a a lull where nobody's been talking about it now, and now I'm here to say, it's like The Matrix, guys. (laughs) Okay? It's like a world where machines have tricked our brains into believing that what we're experiencing with our five senses is real, all the while we're in a computer simulation. And the people who have awakened from this false reality live in this less than desirable but still real world, spending their time trying to free people from this prison-like computer simulation, a false existence where they believe they're living their real lives all the while their body is completely asleep. And they belong to these machines, but believing that they're free to live their lives as they see fit. And I have not seen a better film metaphor for what it looks like to be awakened to the reality of a spiritual life. There's a spiritual existence, and at the turning point of the film, the main character is unplugged from this existence, this matrix, and is brought into the care of a crew of people living in this real world, and his body has to detox from being plugged in with all of this information, the simulation his brain is used to. And at one point they're doing this kind of like acupuncture procedure on his body, and they tell him, your muscles have atrophied. We're rebuilding them. And he says, why do my eyes hurt? And they said, you've never used them before. Seeking after God requires acknowledging and operating within a spiritual reality, and it uses spiritual muscles. And it necessitates a paradigm shift for us that includes the most basic things we believe about reality. So is it possible that what we are currently seeking after in our lives has blinded us to a reality that's more true than the world that we're actually living in? Additionally, is it possible that those of us who profess to believe that we are seeking God are attempting to do so with muscles that have atrophied? Are we actually saying we're seeking God, but in reality we're living a very different focused life? Psalm 24 asks that question of us. So we're going to stand together if you're able, and we're going to read together the Psalm of King David. The earth and everything in it, the world, and all its inhabitants belong to the Lord. For he has laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed or lifted up their soul to what is false, and who has not sworn deceitfully, he will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation, such as the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates, rise up ancient doors, then the king of glory will come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord of armies, he is the king of glory. So we invite you, Lord, to come. We ask that our attention would be given to you and not distracted. We ask that the gates of heaven would open up Holy Spirit, you would come, flood this place with your presence, enable us to receive from you all that you have for us. May anything that I say that's not important or um, not necessary just completely fall away. And Lord, may your words be what we remember this morning. And would you make them sink into our hearts in a way that changes us from the inside out. We pray this in Jesus' name amen. All right, you guys can sit down. So you might have felt like this, and it felt like this to me too when reading that psalm. It's kind of like three disjointed scenes that don't quite fit together. First, we go like super meta, big, the whole world is God's. And then it's about ascending this mountain. Uh, and then it's about a king entering a city who just is victorious in battle. Um, These are all kind of strange scenes, but they all do fit together. And the way that they fit together is when we think about them being situated within the life of this guy, King David. So the Psalms are liturgy. They're a way for a group of people to relate to God together, corporately, collectively. And that's what they're supposed to do. So within this Psalm, you have this kind of like call and response liturgy that happens back and forth a couple of times. Who's this king of glory? It's the Lord. Who's this king of glory? It's the Lord. And it's not like expounding a new idea. It's literally just getting us to repeat it because it's important. So this liturgy goes kind of through a processional of God being the creator of everything and then relating to us as humans and having a relationship with him in some way where we have to go up to this mountain where God exists And then it's about welcoming God as the king into a city where he is going to reign as king. So the Psalms are theology that we learn from, but they're not primarily theology lessons. They're meant to be sung corporately and evoke some kind of experience. And they're written out of these specific contexts. And the context for this psalm, most people believe, is in the life of King David, who was the first king of Israel to actually unite all of the 12 tribes under one leadership. There is this scene where he takes the Ark of God. This is in 2 Samuel 6. He takes the Ark of God, which is this ancient artifact containing all of these things that represent the presence of God dwelling with his people. And he brings it from where it was being like stashed, uh, where it was not supposed to be, in a giant parade or procession to the city of Jerusalem where David was living as the king. And they put it on this place called Zion, which is the mount, this like, mountain peak in Jerusalem where later the temple would be constructed under David's son, King Solomon. So this ark... Is brought into the city of Jerusalem, and in this scene, David is there leading this parade, where he's like dancing around and singing and wearing this like priestly garment. And many uh, commentators believe that might have been all he was wearing. It's kind of weird, um, but the king, you know, the king usually is like stately and like presentable, but this guy was like dancing around, looking like a crazy person, and his wife got mad at him um, as a good wife should be, but he's like, no, man, like I'm dancing because God is coming to town. God is entering the city and I'm excited about that. And if you read the Psalms, David's life was one of complete devotion and pursuit of God. And so when you think about him welcoming the presence of God into his city for the very first time, he was excited. David was God's anointed king. And this psalm could have been used as a processional for that that same story. Maybe they sang this psalm as they were bringing the ark into the city. But what I think is more uh, likely is that this psalm is actually David reflecting on that experience. Because what happens just after they bring that ancient artifact into the city of Jerusalem is that David has this conversation with God and he says, listen, God, I have my palace here in Jerusalem, but you have no place to live. Like we just brought this ark here, but there's no place for people to come and worship you. And we're gonna read it together, 2 Samuel 7. It says, when the king had settled into his palace and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all of his enemies, the king said to the prophet Nathan, look, I'm living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. So Nathan told the king, go, do that all is on, that on your mind, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, this prophet, go to my servant David and say, this is what the Lord says. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not dwelt in a house. Instead, I have been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever spoken a word to one of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, asking, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? So basically, David's good inclination to create a space within the city of Jerusalem for people to encounter God's presence is met by kind of this like incredulous response from God going like, Why would you think I need a house? I'm God. And so you you go to the very beginning of this psalm where it's David reflecting on this experience of like wanting to build God a place among them so that there is a place for people to experience his presence and pursue him like his life is all about. And then he realizes, wait a minute, everything belongs to God. Why would I need to do that? So the question for us is, why do we have to seek God? Why can't God just reveal himself? Why, do we, why, why did David think that he needed to build this place for God when God had clearly been with the Israelites without a house? We were designed to be in union with God, and we've lost that to some extent. And I think a big part of that is because we don't acknowledge this foundational reality, that we belong to him. Again, in verse one, the earth and everything in it, the world and all its inhabitants, you, me, animals, belong to the Lord. This is a foundational reality defining question. Does everything belong to someone? The statement in this psalm is yes, everything without exception belongs to God. God who formed the earth and filled it with everything that it contains. There is a creator-creature relationship that all of us have to God. And what does this mean? If you belong to God, there are implications. You interact with everything else that he created in terms of, of stewardship. They're on his terms. God gets to set the terms of our relationship, not just to him, but to everything else that he created. We are accountable to him for how we treat the world. We interact with him on his terms. That's in terms of worship. We are designed for relationship, With him. And in another psalm, it says that those who attempt to live as if this weren't the ultimate reality, those who say in their heart there is no God, they are called foolish. This is foolishness. After weighing the evidence of the world honestly and determining I'm accountable to no one and I'm in charge of my own fate and nobody else, psalms call that foolishness. And why is it foolishness? Why isn't it just like Well, everybody has their own opinion. You should just respect everybody's opinion. And if they haven't had this experience yet where they believe that there's a creator, that's fine. It's called foolishness because when we don't acknowledge this creator-creature relationship, we actually substitute the role of creator with creation. We take something that's supposed to be in God's place and something that's not supposed to be in that place and we just substitute it right there. If we don't end up living in a way that reflects the reality that everything was created, we end up living in a false reality. All of the reverence that actually belongs to the creator will be given over, including ourselves, to some other aspect of creation, whether that's something else or whether that's ourselves. Now, Christians do this too. We profess to believe that there is a God ruling over everything, who has created everything, ordered everything, and we, he deserves our allegiance, he delir- deserves our respect, he deserves our love and our devotion. And yet we can live quite frequently as functional atheists. We, we live our lives ordering them, creating them, building kingdoms for ourselves where we live and kind of trying to erect our own little creation where everybody else has to answer to us, and we are the ones who are in charge of our destinies. We're the ones who pick everything. We curate our existences down to the point where we're living in our own little reality. But uh, the late Tim Keller says this about that situation. He says, reality is not infinitely malleable. It imposes itself on us. And freedom comes only by living into that givenness. We were built to know, serve, and love God. If we try to live for anything else, it leads to slavery. But when we begin to live for God and follow His will, we find that we are actually becoming who we were meant to be, realizing our original design. We are a sailboat finally being put out, into deep water. There's an ancient, or not so ancient, Christian creed called the Heidelberg Catechism, and it asks a question, what is our greatest hope in life and death? It is that we are not our own, but we belong to God. Why does everything belong to God? Verse two gives us the answer. It says, for he has laid its foundations on the seas and established it on the rivers. If you create the foundation of something, you are responsible for everything that happens afterwards. God is the one who laid the foundation of the earth. And ancient cosmology, in ancient Near Eastern times, so like the worldviews that all of the biblical authors are swimming in, they believe that the waters were actually ruled by these ancient gods of chaos that were defeated in order to create land. Chaos was still lurking under the depth of these waters, and we had to be careful because the the way that we live could potentially awaken this ancient chaos monster, and then we would pay for it. This is a false reality that many people in ancient civilization based their lives on, and they were not stupid before we write them off as, like, naive, what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, just because we live today and they lived back then that we're more advanced than they are. They simply pursued the wrong things and that left them grasping around in an imaginary world that didn't actually exist. No ancient chaos monsters. But we are no better today. We look for a narrative that makes sense of the world, but we live in a modern world informed by technological dominance over the elements, over scientific discovery, but we spend most of our lives staring into a digital space that doesn't actually exist <laughs> in the real world, playing by the rules of this weird metaverse that's been developed and appeasing its own gods with our sacrifices of time and money. And I don't really have time to explain this, and I don't really have to explain it anymore. We know that we're being like taken advantage of in this way, by digital technology. And here's just one example. John Tyson, who's a pastor in New York, he talks about this study. In 1956, there were two psychologists named Donald Horton and Richard Wool, who concluded that television's representation of celebrities was carefully constructed to create an illusion of intimacy, to make viewers believe that we are actually developing a relationship with famous people on TV. Oh, yeah, that's just like them. (laughs) He would do that. Yeah, (laughs) that's so Ross. Um, Just like certain techniques produced this effect, the recourse to small talk, the use of first names, close-ups, right? Among others, they acted to close this gap between the audience and the guests, engendering this sense of being a part of the circle of friends, right? Right? And these two psychologists coined the term parasocial interaction to describe this this reality of intimacy at a distance. The illusion of intimacy experienced by everybody watching content and psychologically experiencing those people as a part of your actual relational life is called parasocial interaction. That was 1956. (laughs) Imagine how much more we feel that what we are consuming content-wise, has become a part of us in some weird way now. There are stories that we have functionally believed in, not ancient chaos monsters, but to make sense of reality that distract us from basing our lives on the truth that God is creator and we are his creatures. It may not be the existence of these primordial weird monsters, but rather trusting that we are actually the ones in control of our reality. There's a pastor in Australia named Mark Sayers, And he writes this in a book. He says, this is what most of us tend to believe nowadays. He says, one, we're we're born innocent, happy, and whole. Our inner child or our inner self is good. Two, families, bad experiences, binding commitments, externally given identities, cultural, traditional, and religious restrictions make us unhappy, giving us low self-esteem. Through escaping from these binding commitments, external given identities, traditions, and religious restrictions, we discover our inner self, which is good and can guide us. Through finding a missing element, such as a soulmate, a meaningful career, enjoyable experiences, material things, or through exercising our self-expression, our lives can be filled with pleasure and meaning. This narrative is sold to us hundreds of times per day. Hundreds. So much so that it has become, for many of us, an alternate reality. We exist within this reality when we functionally live as if any of these things are actually true. That if any, any of these things are actually the way that we find meaning and purpose in this life, even if we say we don't believe it. And this reality is currently being exposed as totally a sham. Whether it's COVID or global conflict and wars, economic decline and inflation, All of these things are currently making us wake up and realize we've been sold a faulty version of reality. When a society tries to live as though it doesn't owe its existence to God, God graciously allows those faulty foundations, not created by him, to be exposed. There's a Lebanese uh, theologian named Charles Malik, and he says this, are you perplexed? Do you feel the crisis? Do you feel something profoundly wrong, both in your life and in the affairs of the world? Do you, as it were, hold your heart in your hand, fearing that at almost the next moment something terrible is going to break out, both in you and in the world? Have you reached the state where you simply don't quite trust the processes of the world, including nature, science, economics, politics, and even the best goodwill, suspecting that there is in them a flaw somewhere, a false note? an imminent principle of darkness, destruction, and death. He says this is simply the fact that Jesus Christ is the Lord and is judging. False narratives that are constructed, that we base our lives and our realities on, that is not the foundations that God created will be exposed for the shams that they are. And that is grace. That is God's grace showing us that those are not foundations to base our lives on. God is the one who laid the foundation of the world and established it unopposed, unrivaled. He determines reality and what it means to flourish within it. Other ways of relating to the world will chafe against the grain of the way that he designed things. So if we don't have to appease these ancient chaos gods of the sea and we belong to the God who created everything, what does it look like to live in this reality? If we belong to him, how do we relate to him? Let's read verses three through six. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not appealed to what is false and who has not sworn deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So our, our response is like, okay, there's a God who created everything and we belong to him, so how am I supposed to live in his world? But the, the David, the psalmist, says the question is not how, but who, What type of person can relate to a God like this? There is this mountain that is being conceived of where God exists and there's this like pilgrimage to climb to where God is because God as creator is so distinct. He is so much greater and holier than his creation. There is a divide between creator and creature. So how do we Ascend that hill. How do we reach God in that way? The person who is able to do that is not the one who sees relating to God as a means to an end or as some deity to appease in order to live the life that we actually want to live. This is the impulse of religious people everywhere, including Christians. There is a God, he's in charge of everything, and if I want to live the way I want to live, I have to do everything that he says so that he'll leave me alone and I get to live the life that I actually want to live. Religious people accept the premise that there is a God to be related to. We accept the terms and conditions that God has established for how to relate to him. And rather relate to God on our terms, we've convinced ourselves that our lives will go the way that we want them because we're pressing the right buttons in the universe and God just somehow has to bless whatever we decide to do. This is the impulse of religious people. God serves our agenda and our agenda is not to seek him and what he wants for us. The psalmist says that is not the type of person who gets to be with God, who ascends the hill, who gets to be in his presence. It's also not the one who lives in an alternate reality where we pretend to be the one who defines it for ourselves, This is the, the irreligious impulse, the one who is not religious but says, I'm actually in control of everything and don't accept the terms of this creator-creature relationship. Those are not the type of people who get to be with God in his presence. Who we are talking about is the one who, like it says, has, a, has clean hands and a pure heart, verse 4 the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. In other words, the one who desires God, not for anything that we can get out of it, but for his own sake. Not the paranoid religious person (laughs) who is most often doing religious things to manipulate God into owing them the life that they want. What clean hands and a pure heart means is that in order to approach God, there needs to be some kind of exchange If God is righteous and we are not, there needs to be an exchange where something that is impure and unclean becomes pure and clean. And in the Torah, in the first uh, five books of Moses, first five books in the Bible, there were these processes that were described for how people were supposed to kind of cleanse themselves in order to be in a relationship with God because he is holy. And the book of Leviticus, which is everybody's favorite book, you can turn there and find all of the ways that you were supposed to do this. You were supposed to eat certain foods and not eat certain foods. You were supposed to uh, not mix the fibers of your clothing. You were supposed to observe certain days. Uh, you were supposed to make sure that you didn't touch any um, like dead animals or things or like um, any like bodily fluids that would like defile you. If you did these things, you couldn't actually come into the tabernacle space where God's presence is. So it is talking about that. That is what David is talking about here, the one who has clean hands, the one who's actually done the things necessary to approach God on his terms. But it's more than that. It's more than being kosher. It's talking about the heart as well. A pure heart is our core motivations, not just doing the right things, but a matter of our devotion, being free from competing desires. Sometimes we say that God is what we want, like we sang earlier, you're all we want, Holy Spirit, come rest on us, you're all we want, but we're actually just playing the part and we've gotten so good at it that we're actually convincing ourselves that that's what we want. (laughs) But it's not true. Having a pure heart and clean hands is about something called consecration which is a word that none of us use anymore. And it simply means giving ourselves to something. Consecrating yourself is giving yourself over to an aim or a purpose that you are seeking. It's about belonging to something. And in verse four, it says, the one who is able to ascend this hill is the one who has not appealed to Or most translations say, lifted up our souls to what is false or sworn deceitfully. So there's actually a way in which we can give ourselves over to a false reality. What we've been talking about up until now. Giving our souls over, giving ourselves over to, consecrating ourselves to a reality that doesn't actually exist this is very possible. Putting the full weight of our lives onto a reality that cannot actually sustain us. Basing our lives on something to consecrate ourselves to God is to fully embrace the reality that we belong to him. It's to say in verse one, everything belongs to the Lord because he created everything, including me. I belong to the Lord, and so, because of that truth, I am going to give myself over to seeking him with my life. To deny this truth is to live in a world that is less than real. Kingdoms are realities opposed to God's kingdom. To try to ascend different hills, to try to reach God in different ways, is living in a false reality. This includes... Man made kingdoms, political realities, or even imaginary ones, or even the kingdom that we're trying to construct for ourselves. And we discover what kingdom it is that we're actually living for when it becomes threatened. And this is especially evident in LA, where it's so difficult to become established, to have foundations here such a transient place to live where you don't know if the person that you're building a relationship with is gonna be here in six months or not, right? It's so hard to feel established, to feel like you belong here. And we may think that there's this point that we, once we reach it, then we finally have become established. We finally have this foundation. Whether it's the current configura- c- configuration of our career, Finally, becomes what we were imagining it to be. We're finally established, but that too is fragile. We might think that finally actually getting a mortgage, right? Getting a piece of land, or your like your name is on the deed. That doesn't happen, right? <laughs> on the West Side, especially. That it just doesn't happen. Um, Maybe once I have that, or if I had that, then I'd finally feel established. Maybe that's the problem with Los Angeles. That's why I need to leave. I'm moving to Idaho. Bye. (laughs) Maybe that's what I need. I need a piece of paper that says my name on it with a a thing that says I own it. That will give me this foundation that I'm looking for. That is also fragile. We might be trying to establish ourselves with some of these things, career, land, land, Mortgage, whatever, before we get around to deciding that we are going to consecrate ourselves to God. And then maybe we'll give him a little piece of the kingdom that we've created. And this reveals that why we're actually here in LA, for many of us, is determined by us and not God's calling on our lives. The thing that brought us here is actually not God saying, I want you to go to LA, I want you to stay in LA, but It's our own whims, our own desires, the own constructions of things that we are really basing our lives on, this foundation, this false reality. Like we talked about before, David, after he realized that he had established peace for his kingdom by conquering his enemies, it was only then that he realized, oh, God, right, doesn't have a place to live. (laughs) Oh, that's awkward, I have all of this stuff, and now maybe I should seek after the Lord. But God's response is, everything is mine. (laughs) That All of your dreams, that reality that you were trying to construct for yourself, where you finally feel established and everything's going to be right, that whole time, all of it was mine anyway. Living out of a false reality guarantees that when storms come to shake the foundation, it will not be stable enough to withstand them. Only the foundation of God's word can establish our lives. And those who don't dedicate themselves primarily to God are not giving themselves to nothing. Like we said, we're giving ourselves to a false reality. Seeking first anything else is consecrating ourselves to a reality that will be completely dismantled when storms come. Like the ancient theologian Augustine said, God, you have formed us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we find, they find their rest in you. Consecration is a matter of settling who you belong to and living into the reality that was stated in verses one and two. Everything belongs to God. Rather than lifting up our souls to what is false, our lives are devoted to the truth that we belong to God because a consecrated life is the most rational life. A consecrated life unto God is acknowledging what is already true about your life, that you belong to him. And living and establishing our lives on the foundation of that truth will set us free. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you do not live according to that truth, you will become shackled to a false reality. That is the paradox that belonging to God brings freedom. Giving ourselves to the ownership of God is what gives us freedom. That is the blessing that the psalmist is talking about in verse 5. He will receive, he or she, will receive blessing from the Lord. When you acknowledge this, when you're in God's presence, you will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness. God will give you what is necessary to live life in his presence, that we don't intrinsically have. So it says in verse six, such is the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Why seek God? That sense of restlessness, looking for something to bring us fulfillment and establish us, doesn't actually go away when you become a Christian. Once you have the assurance that you belong to God and acknowledge that reality, and we have this righteousness that he's given us, why should we continue to seek? Those who have truly experienced God's presence, who haven't just used God as a means to achieve some other reality that we are constructing, have this holy tunnel vision, people who have experienced God's presence and realize that that is exactly what we were made for, having this relationship with our creator, knows that there is no other place or person on earth that can satisfy them in this deep way that God can. And so we consecrate our lives to seeking him out for the rest of our lives. We have this holy discontentment about it. A.W. Tozer who is who wrote the book Pursuit of God, which is one of our recommended resources? Highly recommend. It takes like one sitting. Still, like tops the list as far as this topic. Tozer says, "I want to deliberately encourage this mighty longing after God. The lack of it has brought us to our present low estate. The stiff and wooden quality about our religious lives is a result of our lack of holy desire, complacency." is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. He wants to be wanted. Too bad that with many of us, he waits so long, so very long, in vain. Do you know someone like this who just seems to have an insatiable longing for God? where it almost seems like fake, (laughs) but you know that it's not, who has clearly expressed and experienced God's presence in a satisfying way, and it's still not enough. It hasn't satiated them. Their passion, their desire for God sometimes inspires you to want God more, to want what they want, and sometimes it also makes you feel guilty for being too easily content with your lack of experience. Of God. I'm not talking about emotionalism here, about constantly chasing experiences, but specifically desiring God and his presence. It almost feels like they're faking it, but you know that they're not. Some of you guys in this room I look up to in that way. I'm not going to name you and embarrass you, but you know who I'm talking about. The people who seem to have this insatiable hunger or thirst for God, and it, sometimes it rubs off on you, and you're like, what was that? Now I want God even more just because I spent like five minutes with this person. In Jesus's famous Sermon on the Mount, referencing this very Psalm, Psalm 24, he talks about this reality. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. This blessing that Jesus announces is for those whose motivations are pure such that the reward is intrinsic to them. In other words, the pure in heart are blessed because they get what they really want most, which is God himself. A life of seeking God is a life of deep satisfaction because we are guaranteed to receive that which we desire the most, God himself. And I don't know about you, but when I honestly assess my own heart, I find completely conflicting motivations. We don't want the things that God wants, and even when we say we do, we functionally hope in other things. This is the essence of what the Bible calls sin. Jesus says elsewhere that the human heart is very corrupt and conflicted, and above all other things, who can possibly know What's going on inside of ourselves? Sometimes we've convinced ourselves that we actually do want the right things, but we don't. Sin deadens our spiritual muscles, makes them atrophy, makes it impossible to have a pure heart that really seeks after God. So we go back to that question in verse three. Who can ascend? Who could possibly say... Yes, I have clean hands, a pure heart, and I'm seeking you, God, above all else. Not me. And I know, if you're being honest with yourself, not anybody in this room, which leads us to the final stanza, verse seven. Lift up your heads, you gates, rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors, and the king of glory will come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord of armies. He is the king of glory. The climax of this king's procession into the holy place has this people, this crowd of people crying out, open up let him in and it's this language of a king which happened in ancient civilizations this king would return after winning a battle over his enemies to be welcomed back into his city with a victory parade and everybody's dancing around and they open up the gates they throw it open and say yeah the conquering king has come back there's this amazing parade and jerusalem is the city of this king Zion is this holy hill, the most holy place, and David, after conquering all of these kingdoms, realizes that it is not he but God who deserves the credit. He was waiting for God himself to come and reign as the king. David looks at all these questions, who may ascend? Who may ascend to the holy hill? Who is this king of glory? And he knows the answer is not me. The only one worthy to ascend the hill is God himself. And we could not ascend. He had to descend. This king of glory, God himself, came to us because we could not go to him. And this is what we just celebrated at Christmas. The king came down because we could not go up. Jesus' first entry into the city of Jerusalem where he's being proclaimed as the king, this holy procession declaring the king to come into his holy city, he was riding on a donkey. (laughs) Nobody recognized the king when he came the first time because he came as a baby. And his throne was a feeding trough, not some grand victory parade where the gates are thrown open and he comes in and everyone says, who is this? He came as a convicted criminal, and his throne was a cross. His crown was made of thorns, and he didn't have a palace to call his own. He had nowhere to lay his head. His kingdom was not of this world. It was a different reality entirely, and yet the world belongs to him. What does it mean to seek the face of this kind of king? It's to look for him in the places and the ways that we would least expect. Who is this king of glory is not just a rhetorical question because he's not just a king but he is our servant king. He shows up at the dinner party of the people that you would never associate with. He's taking time to notice the beggar at the end of the street. He's not rushing past the brokenness in your life but grieving it with you. How do we make this king our king? How do we crown him, how do we welcome him into our life? By following his teachings, of course, emulating him. But first, it's letting him purify our heart and our hands. Acknowledging we have not what it takes to climb the hill. He had to climb it for us and he was crucified for us. And his death purifies our hearts, our motives, our intentions, and our hands. He ascended the hill first and paved the way back into the presence of God for us. Jesus is the only one truly able to stand in the holy place of God to ascend this hill. And yet he chose to stand in our place as sinful humanity. And the hill that he ascended was to die on a cross so that we could be brought to God. This is how we know that it's a blessing to be with this God, our creator, because he was willing to give away everything to be with us, not just to give us an example to follow, but to do what we could not. He gave us new hearts to make us the kind of people who can live in his presence. But it doesn't stop there because now we pursue the God who pursued us first. Open up the doors, open up these ancient gates can become not just the victory parade of the coming king but the cry of the church. Brothers and sisters, our battle cry is open up and let the king come in because we have access to God's presence now God longs to be in our midst, but he wants to be wanted. He wants us to pursue, to seek his face. God's reality is desiring to crash into our own. Heaven invading earth in experiences of worship where the king shows up and is glorified by our lives this gate that was closed off to humanity because of our sin, this most ancient door that blocked the way back into the presence of God is now thrown open because of Jesus' sacrifice. We have access to the place where God dwells. Like Hebrews says, let us come boldly before the throne of grace, knowing that we will find help in time of need. Maybe you haven't experienced a time like this when heaven and earth have collided and when the gate was lifted and you saw God's face. But back in verse six, it says, those who seek the face of the God of Jacob will be blessed. You guys know the story of the life of Jacob. He was a liar. He was a deceiver. He was one who swore deceitfully and often lifted up his soul to what was false. And yet, there was this key moment in his life where he saw God face to face. And awkwardly and strangely, it says that they actually were in a wrestling match together. God showed up in human form and wrestled with this guy, this patriarch of faith who had disowned his calling, and completely lied and ran away from home and was now living on the lamb, and God showed up to have a wrestling match with him, and he named the place where he wrestled with God Peniel, which means face of God, because he says, I saw the face of God and I still lived. This was a man who had not sought God's face, who had not lived a life that was pleasing to God, And yet God in his grace came down to him to show him, I'm pursuing you. Are you gonna pursue me? Friends, that is the same God who came in the Messiah Jesus. He pursued you. He gave his life for you. He knows that your life is one that needed to be purified and he did it. And now he's inviting you to seek him as he sought you. Let's seek him together, shall we?